The Plan de San Diego embodied the most bizarre irredentist conspiracy in American history, and it led to the bloodiest and most controversial episode in the history of the Texas Rangers. The plan, or manifesto, reflected the practice in Mexico of any self-respecting revolutionary movement being accompanied by a manifesto denouncing those in power and setting forth the aims of the rebels. Such a plan was named for the locality where it was first promulgated. The Plan de San Diego were purportedly signed on January 6, 1915, in the small South Texas town of San Diego, population 1900. The provisions of the plan were truly breathtaking. It established a provisional directorate and designated one Agustin Escarza as the military chief of the revolutionary movement. The document then laid out the movement's specific objectives, of which I will read only a few. On February 20th, 1915, at 2 a.m., there would occur an uprising against the United States government to proclaim the liberty of blacks against the Yankee tyranny that had held them in iniquitous slavery since remote times, and to proclaim the independence of Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, and California, of which states the Republic of Mexico was robbed in a most perfidious manner by North American imperialism. Every foreigner who shall be found armed and cannot prove his right to carry arms, continues the plan, shall be summarily executed regardless of his race or nationality. Every North American, by which is meant Anglos, over 16 years of age shall be put to death, and only the aged men... The women and the children shall be respected, and on no account shall the traitors to our race, La Raza, the Mexican-Americans of South Texas, be spared or respected. To understand the situation in January 1915, a bit of lower Rio Grande Valley history is necessary. From Texas independence in 1836 through 1900, the population of the region was predominantly Hispanic, at least 95%, and isolated from the rest of Texas. The closest ties were with Mexican communities across the Rio Grande, and traffic back and forth was largely unhampered. But beginning in 1904, with the arrival of the railroad in Brownsville, the area was now linked by rail to the rest of the nation. This meant that the rich soil of the region, when supplemented by gravity and pump irrigation from the Rio Grande, could produce huge quantities of truck crops for a national market. People poured in, determined to make the desert bloom. As of 1915, the Lower Valley had approximately 140,000 acres that had been cleared of brush, planted in crops, and watered by an enormously expensive network of some 1,200 miles of canals distributing water pumped from the Rio Grande. This extraordinary land boom inevitably created problems. As the historian of South Texas, Evan Andrus, has noted, the few Anglo settlers who had arrived in the 19th century had melded into the society and culture of the region. They learned Spanish, joined the Roman Catholic Church, married into the leading Hispanic families, socialized, and did business with local elites. Furthermore, they often assumed responsibility for the employees, assisting them in a variety of ways. By doing so, these Anglo elites won the personal loyalty of their employees. By contrast, the multitude who arrived after the railroad was completed refused to learn Spanish and despised Hispanics, whom they viewed as ignorant and lazy. Furthermore, they paid the prevailing low-wage scales, but unlike the predecessor Anglos, they would not deign to assist their employees. They even refused to associate with the Hispanic elite, viewing them as social inferiors. What occurred was a monumental class of cultures, not unlike the one that had produced the independence of Texas in 1836. The Plan de San Diego was the spark that produced a violent explosion. And that is from the outstanding book, The Texas Rangers and the Mexican Revolution, by Charles Harris and Louis Sadler, published in 2004. I'm Josh Trevino, and this is The Hard Country.
everyone, and welcome to the Hard Country Podcast. My name is Melissa Ford. I'm a policy director at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and I'm joined by Josh Trevino, the foundation's chief of intelligence and research. Thank you for reading that passage, Josh. Um, I thought it was super interesting. One of the things that stands out to me is that you talk about this kind of coming together of Texas and the clash of cultures that happened. So in the passage, if I'm understanding correctly, we have this lower valley that was very isolated. Um, I think 95% Hispanic is what you read. That's right. And then we have the rest of Texas and this very stark difference before and after this this railroad in, in Brownsville, right? Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and, and why it's relevant today? The lower Rio Grande Valley has has always been a uh, kind of a kind of a world unto itself, and in mm-hmm. a lot of ways that continues into the modern day. And we should be clear for those of you who are not Texan, or even for those of you who are not uh, you know from South Texas, uh, that the Rio Grande Valley is a geographic expression, not actually technically a valley. You know, what we're really talking about, and there's some disputation as to where the valley begins and ends, but effectively, if you're talking uh, essentially anything downriver of Roma out in Star County, uh, you're talking about the Rio. Grand Valley. If you're at Laredo, not the valley, sorry, uh, but, uh, but 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 the valley. And so when we think of the valley, we're thinking of Cameron, Hidalgo, um, maybe Star and Zapata counties, uh, and and then all the the, the settlements therein. Um, and so, and so, what, what what Harris and Sadler are describing is a region that gets settled uh, with the Escondón settlements in the mid 1700s, middle of the 18th century, um, uh, and ends up essentially an isolate region uh, from the rest of the United States, certainly uh, for, for for basically the entire the, the entirety of the second half of the 19th century until the railroad comes in 1904, at which point it is actually linked. Uh, in a meaningful economic way uh, to the rest of the United States. And mm-hmm. so what you have is the, the growth of this big fruit industry right. in South Texas. So, you know, Texas grapefruit uh, becomes a big mm-hmm. thing. And it actually rivals Florida in a lot of ways for um, uh, for, for, for kind of that activity for a long time, although it never self-brands to the same extent that Florida does because there's other things going on in Texas. Um, uh, but uh, you know, you know what, what, what you what you see is is because it's a cultural isolate, because it's also effectively an economic isolate, and it's still, I think, you could argue to a tremendous extent, kind of a suburb of Monterrey out mm-hmm. in, in Nuevo León, Mexico, which is the real manufacturing, industrial, and even finance powerhouse of the region there. Right. Um, you see this persistence of sort of old settlement patterns and connections uh, that, that that endure, certainly endured to 1915, definitely endure in the year 2023. And uh, with it, when you have an influx of new inhabitants, there is friction, there's social tension. Um, uh, And so the Anglos and the Mexicans come. I think there's uh, kind of an effort to make a morality play out of a lot of this, this idea that there's sort of these oppressive Anglos who come in and, uh, you know, sort of put their boots on the neck of the of the Mexican-American population. Uh, And, you know, know, we, we should be clear in understanding what happens in history with that. Uh, it's a mistake to look at history writ large uh, in almost any context as a morality play. There are some exceptions uh, to it. Um, uh, but certainly in the context of Texas history, there's a lot of cross currents. Um, you know, as we saw, there were elements within the Mexican population in South Texas at the time who were perfectly willing to advocate for a genocide mm-hmm. of, of, of Anglos. Uh, and you know, what, what we didn't read about, although this is what the this is what the Harrison Sadler book is really about, is the extent to which um, state law enforcement, in particular the Texas Rangers, conducts uh, a counterinsurgency, um, uh, there's really no other word for it, that is candidly savage uh, in its scope and reach and sanguinary character. Um, and so this is all part of a, um, uh, and kind of the reason that we care about it now, is it's all part of a larger picture as Mexico 
in the period contemporaneous Mexico, which is the Mexico of the revolution, 1910, really through the early 1920s, uh, descends into um, anarchy and mm -hmm. political tumult. This plan de San Diego, and Harrison Sadler talk about this in this book, um, was was definitely not written in San Diego, Texas. Uh, anybody who's been to San Diego, Texas, knows that there's uh, at least the last time I went through there, which admittedly was about six or seven years ago, it had a single stoplight, uh, and there's just not. I didn't even know there was a San Diego, Texas. There is a San Diego, Texas. It's not like San Diego, California, um, yeah. uh, but uh, it's it, it's one of these these small farming communities uh, that, that 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 used to exist, and so and so that that part of Texas, um, uh, you know. You think about San Diego, Alice, uh, uh, Hebronville, um, uh, places like that mm -hmm. uh, tend to be tend to be fairly self-contained. They're in a very remote and 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 quite difficult uh, area. It's difficult to ranch, difficult to farm, oh. um, and so it's always been sparsely populated. That will probably continue to the end of time. But um, uh, th th this document, all the evidence that we have, and I don't think we have conclusive historical evidence on it, um, was probably ginned up by carrancistas or people affiliated with carrancistas in Mexico. Um, and then there's this effort to take the tumult of the Mexican Revolution and export it to Texas. And it goes extremely badly for all parties concerned. Yeah, interesting. And you think the relevance of this passage and the relevance in general is just that it's important for people to be aware of what's going in Mexi on in Mexico, because obviously it affects a lot of what's going on here. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and I think that's exactly right. You know, there has been this is something that you and I have experienced, especially when we talk with, uh, you know, USG personnel who are involved in Mexico related policymaking, many of whom, you know, are good, diligent people who want to do their best by the citizenry of the United States. Right. But we know that there's a there's a traditional policy preference uh, at the federal level um, for sort of you know what I'll call decoupling, this is my phrase, not theirs, of, of, of what's going on with Mexico from Mexican relations to the U.S. So effectively, yeah. we're not going to get involved in uh, you know, expectations of Mexican governance in return for good relations on Mexico, uh, for example, in trade and security, or we're not going to link trade and security, or we're not going to link Mexican civil society with good relations with the United States in general. And so and so the effect of this decoupling, uh, you know, one of the effects, and, and it stems from a good place, like like there are defensible reasons for this decoupling. I would argue that it is, it fails in the current era because the nature of the Mexican state has changed. But uh, you know, one of the effects is that uh, you know we tell ourselves, which is a falsehood from a historical standpoint, that what's going on in Mexico doesn't really necessarily matter. It doesn't matter mm -hmm. if Mexico is, say, an authoritarian dictatorship or run by cartels or anything else, as long as we have say border security or control over migration or anything like that all of which are tremendously important i'm not i'm not denigrating those but what i want to illustrate with this particular reading is that is that ultimately that's a um uh, that's sort of a falsehood that we yeah. tell themselves. When Mexico goes to the place where it went in the Mexican Revolution, to the place where it may be going now, the effects in Texas, the effects in the United States are unavoidable and serious, and they look like things. I'm not making a prediction for the modern day, but historically they have looked like things like the Plan de San Diego. And so the question that we ask ourselves 100 years later is, how do we not get there? Mm, yeah, I agree. You can't decouple them. And I think that's a good way to um, go ahead and segue into what is happening in Mexico, because it's important for us to be aware, right? Right. And so I think that a lot has happened since the last time that we filled this episode. So Too we'll much. have a lot to talk about. Yes. But uh, one of the more recent events that happened last week is just this absolute chaos about AMLO's health, right? And I think anybody who 
is involved in Mexican politics or knows a little bit about Mexican politics has heard of this. But for those listeners that that don't know, um, last week was absolutely crazy. And that's because the Mexican president, Lopez Obrador, he kind of disappeared from the public eye for just a couple of days and people were freaking out. That's right. We were told, everybody was told that he had just gotten ill with COVID for a third time. Yeah and that he was fine, that his condition wasn't serious, that he was just social distancing. But people were still freaking out and rumors were flying. And I mean, even you and me, we heard things like uh, he had a heart attack. We heard that he was paralyzed. That's right. People were asking us if we knew whether he was dead or not. And yeah. so it was just absolutely insane. And I think it's interesting that People are so willing to jump into conclusions when it comes to a lot of the time, like authoritarian presidents. Why do you th why do you think that is? Well, you know, it's it's uh, there's a lot of questions at play here. So so you're right. So he goes to Veracruz. Uh, so at the time of this recording, this is two weekends ago. Mm -hmm. He goes to Veracruz and he delivers this uh, almost this jaw-dropping speech. He's actually there to commemorate the, uh, I forget what the anniversary is, but 109th. like the 109th. Oh, thank yeah. you. Okay. So the 109th anniversary of the American occupation of Veracruz. Um, uh, for, for listeners who don't know what that is, the, the, just the very abbreviated version is that Woodrow Wilson, uh, possibly one of our worst foreign policy presidents of all time, made the choice in 1914 to have the United States Navy uh, occupy the mm -hmm. Mexican city of Veracruz because at the time he wanted to put pressure on the, the regime of Victoriano Huerto, Huerta, excuse me. Um, we'll move past that. Anyway, it's not a well, it's not a fondly remembered moment in Mexican history and it was probably yeah. a pointless action on our part too, but so be yeah. it. Uh, so he goes and he commemorates uh, this anniversary and in the course of his speech, he actually says uh, that, uh, you know, effectively, this is my paraphrase, but I, I would defend it as an accurate one, that uh, if the United States decides to, you know, violate Mexican sovereignty, uh, mm -hmm. which I'll put in quotes, violate Mexican sovereignty by attacking criminal cartels, by attacking narco bosses and so on within Mexico, that the Mexican state and the Mexican people will fight the Americans, mm -hmm. which which is an astonishing thing to say. It's 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 one thing to have that message kind of communicated, sort of um, uh, you know quietly or just emphasizing that it's not something the Americans yeah. would would should do. But to get out and and to say it overtly that that, that we will fight the United States if the U.S. It's comes shocking. in looking for you know chapitos or whomever else is 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 astonishing. It is it is the president of Mexico choosing a side. So he does this, and the news of that. Which doesn't get far, by the way, because mm -hmm. again, the United States doesn't really have a press corps at this point that's equipped to, to, to either cover or understand what's happening in Mexico, which is a cause for great regret. Um, but then he immediately gets ill, and the last that we see of AMLO is him being sort of led away. He's clearly looking, for those of you who have seen the press photo, he's clearly looking quite ill, and he's getting on a plane, I believe it's a naval aircraft, to take him back to Mexico City for intensive yeah. medical care. And so it's within 48 hours after that that, that you and I start getting uh, texts and WhatsApp messages from people saying, hey, uh, did you hear AMLO's dead? And and at first, you know, I was astonished. I was like, are you kidding me? You know, AMLO's dead? Well, he's not dead. He's just disappeared. And it is, it is this very interesting sort of Soviet-style um, uh, like information bubble around the leader's health. Now, we know from the Guacamaya leaks that AMLO's health is bad to begin with. He's had you know, cardiac issues. He's had issues yeah. with COVID. And, so, and, and he's an old man in general, and, and it's yeah. just not in robust health. But for him to disappear the way that he disappeared and for nobody around him to, to appear to have any answers about it fuels the speculation. Um, and I think they, there was probably about a 48-hour period, uh, I won't speak for you, but for me, where I felt a lot of dread at it yeah. um, uh, because, of course, the successor 
to AMLO is much worse. Is much worse. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to, you want to tell tell yeah. the listeners who that is? Yeah. Yeah. So he, when he was sick, he left his interior minister in charge, Adán Augusto, who is his cousin. <laughs> yeah, Secretary of the Gobernación. Yeah, and also used to be the governor of Tabasco. Yes. Right. Yes. And um, so we know that he has like all these aspirations to replace AMLO. Mm-hmm. Um, he wants to be the next president. That's his dream. But um, it was very interesting, and I think that the time that he was replacing AMLO was actually really good for him because it made him rise a little bit in prominence. A lot of people didn't know who he was. It got people thinking about him as president. Yeah, I got yeah, asked, like, oh, wait, who, who is it? And, yeah. you know, he got to answer some questions at press conference. He got to do a lot of that. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about why he's so bad? He is he is terrible. Uh, you know, you know, AMLO and, of course, um, you know, and his cousin, Augusto Lopez, um, uh, have this this friendliness toward the cartels, but in uh, in Adan Augusto's case, uh, again in the in the the Guacamaya leaks, this hack that uh, that downloaded a bunch of, I think it was all Sedena information, correct? So it was it was yeah. sort of it was sort of army specific uh, stuff, but uh, but there's correspondence in there to the effect that when Adan Augusto Lopez was governor of Tabasco, he actually handed over the police files, the police mm-hmm. personnel files of his own state police force. Uh, to the Jalisco cartel, the cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación, right? And so, and so, which is a grotesque betrayal. I think we've mentioned it here on this podcast before. Yeah. But it's worth emphasizing, that's the guy who almost became president of Mexico last week. And uh, there, was, there was a lot of alarm over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, during his time that he was kind of filling in for AMLO, he got to answer a few questions. And a lot of the mañaneras and press conferences were just panicked people asking about AMLO and his health. Right. But he did get to a- answer a few questions on other issues as well. And one of the questions that he was asked is, um, he was asked about Chihuahua Governor Maru Campos's recent request to the federal government. To help yes. with all of this migration that's flowing north. Yeah. Um, and in this letter, sh- sh- and in this request, she wrote that they were desperate, that they didn't have any of the re- resources that they needed to care for all of the people that were moving north. Mm-hmm. She also said that they were in charge of this humanitarian crisis that's only going to get worse and worse and worse. And she begged the federal government to step up and do something about it because that's their job, Right. which sounds very, very familiar to something familiar, that we've been it? saying for yeah. a very long time. But uh, what's interesting about this is his, his response to, to the question. And he responded by stressing that Mexico is a country of asylum and that it will always have its doors open to anyone that's fleeing from difficult situations Mm -hmm. in their home nations. And he also said that the federal government will, regardless of what they're asking for, will continue to guarantee migrants free passage passage through Mexico. Mm. Um, So what... What do you th- have you have you heard about this answer or what do you think about I heard this about I heard, about I heard about the appeal because uh, I think you and I corresponded on it briefly but I actually had not seen the answer so that's very interesting to me you know there's th- th- this idea that Mexico is always a, a country of asylum uh, does yeah. have does have roots in a lot of 20th century Mexican history and so there was a period I think you can argue that Mexico plays this very positive role essentially from the late 20s through really the 1940s um, uh, Mexico was sort of this haven for yeah. uh, what I describe as anti-fascist. Right. Um, uh, Europeans, uh, in particular, but uh, you know, you and I had a dinner with a distinguished gentleman uh, whose uh, parents or grandparents—I forget—were Polish Jews who, who came to Mexico grandparents. and grandparents yeah. in the 1930s. Uh, and so, and so, and so that, that that actually exists. That tradition exists. Yeah. And if I had to guess, 
Um, I certainly don't know Adán Agustín's intellectual background, but but that, that might have been a reference to that, this idea that Mexico did take in all these people from Spanish Republicans in the 1930s to, you know, Trotsky to, um, you know, Jewish refugees and, you know, good for Mexico for doing that. Right, yeah. That's not what's happening in Mexico now, though. No, uh, you not know, even close. What's happening in Mexico now is it's, it's effectively a transit country for, uh, you, know, you know, tremendous numbers, millions upon millions of individuals from, you know, you name it, Venezuela, uh, uh, the Northern Triangle in Central America, Haiti and beyond. Beyond, um, uh, South Asia, East Asia, and so on, uh, who are who are passing through. They're not coming. So, so this idea that Mexico is a place of asylum is not really uh, illuminated by the case of who's coming now, because very few of any of these individuals are willingly staying in Mexico. Many of them are staying in Mexico, but it's because they're made to. Um, but uh, almost any one of them would pick up immediately and come to the United States, because that's the ultimate destination that gets them to Mexico, right. uh, that, that makes them want to go. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the unwillingness to shut that down, I think, is probably in the unwillingness to acquiesce to, you know, what is obviously a very reasonable request by the governor of Chihuahua uh, is, is is probably rooted in that ideological background. It's rooted in uh, sort of what I would describe as this very modernista, very AMLO related sense that you have to reject whatever it is the Americans want, which, you know, we'll talk about that, too. Um, uh, and, and, and it might be, this is me being extremely uncharitable, but we are talking about a guy who turned over his police force's own personnel files to the Jalisco cartel. Yeah. Um, it might also be rooted in a desire to see the money continue to come rolling in through the human trafficking activities. And look, we know that the human traffickers in Mexico are, are not just the cartels. It also includes um, INM, which is the uh, Instituto Nacional por Migración. Um, uh, Sedena is heavily involved. It's the mm -hmm. Army in human trafficking. Yep. Uh, Guardia Nacional is heavily involved in human trafficking. And so there's all these, uh, not just these extra governmental organizations that traffic people through Mexico, but it also so uh, institutions of the government itself, and Adán Augusto uh, oversees all of that. So you tell me what his interest is. Well, thank you. That's a great perspective. And since we're talking about the border and mm -hmm. the situation at the border, I want to use that to transition to this very terrifying article that you sent me. I think you sent it to me yesterday. Oh, sure. But it's the article about how the, the Mexican cartels, yeah, yeah. how they're orchestrating these human experiments in the Mexican border towns of Tijuana and Mexicali, I think. Yeah, I think yeah it that's was. right. That's right. But basically, the cartels are testing fentanyl on drug addicts so that they can figure out how to calculate what dosage um, they can use on, on, on the fentanyl that they're trafficking into the U.S. And there's a lot of interesting things about this. Um, one, obviously, is that we've been told repeatedly that it's not a problem on the Mexican side, right? It's right. just a problem when it comes to Americans. I mean, AMLO has said this a ton of times that uh, we are the consumers, you know, we're the ones that are that are having the problem and that yeah. it's not consumed in Mexico. We Americans. Yeah, yeah we yeah. Americans, yeah, Americans because yeah. of our lack of hugs, right? <laughs> yes, of course. And um, so that's one interesting thing about it. And I want to know what you think now about that. And I also have, I think, a few quotes uh, sure. that I got from that. But the other interesting thing about it is the actual facts. And so, um, you know, as you know, two weeks ago, the DOJ indicted the Chapitos. Mm -hmm. And it was because of their fentanyl that they're trafficking into the U.S. Right. But the indictment said something interesting. And the indictment describes this case of a woman that was given three doses of fentanyl in Mexico on the Mexican side. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, it was done so that they could ca calculate the dosage of how much they could give a person without killing them. And she unfortunately died. She died of an overdose. But this indictment describes other things like that that were happening, other occasions where people were tested on to see how much, how, how much drugs. And these are vulnerable people. These are addicts. Right. But how much drugs their system could take before they died, before they overdosed. Jeez. And then these drugs were sent to the U.S. anyway. So this article is unlike anything I, I've ever heard. Um, did and that and that human testing is in the indictment as well. The the, the Chapitos indictment. These cases know, were yeah. The, the, these cases were okay. The well, indictment talks about these cases. You yeah. have, you have uh, shown me up with your diligence because uh, I did not read the Chapitos indictment. I just knew they were indicted. But um, I mean that's that's horrific. But it's it's consonant with the with the story in El País uh, from yesterday, yeah. uh, stating that the that the cartels are using Tijuana and uh, and Mexicali. As, as test beds uh, where they can figure out, you know, calculate fentanyl dosage uh, basically per, by performing, you know, these macabre human experiments yeah. on, on, on the poor, on the addicted, uh, on the homeless uh, in, in Mexico City themselves. I mean, I mean, talk about a, um, a, you know, you know the, the lower ends of the spectrum of human depravity. Uh, this oh, is yeah. down there. I mean, this is this, this is something out of almost a horror Nazi, movie. Nazi Europe, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Like, like, how much do we have to give you to kill you? Um, and that's what they're doing. And you know, I'd been told uh, by by a colleague that um, that if you wanted to uh, to to see where the fentanyl problem in Mexico was going in terms of the addiction and the use, then j just Google um, fentanyl Tijuana uh, because apparently that was the epicenter. Well, now we know why it's the epicenter. It's the epicenter because that is the de facto population testing lab yeah. for the cartels. Uh, yeah. I, I I I think it's worth knowing, and we have to face. Um, we have to face what they are very squarely. Uh, these are not just market-based organizations. It's not just the mafia. Not that I'm excusing the mafia as any morally better, because the mafia too is detestable. But ultimately, you know, th there is sort of this sense, at least in its classic form, that the mafia is um, is 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 weirdly market-based, illegally market-based. Uh, you know, maybe trying to, in in many ways, sort of sort of circumvent the market through through strong arm or extortionate tactics. Um, but you get to a level of, of immorality, amorality, in the case of Mexican cartels, it's very hard to match anywhere, um, uh, you know, in, in, in traditional organized crime in the United States. And man, that's something we have to, uh, frankly, extirpate. Yeah. With or without, um, candidly, the, uh, the the aid of AMLO's regime. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's there's been this kind of fight of pointing fingers about who produces and who consumes, but a lot of people... Sure. It's, but even me didn't realize that Tijuana has become this like epicenter for fentanyl consumption. Horrific. I hadn't really heard that before. Imagine, imagine. I mean, imagine that you are a a, a woman. You're on the streets. You're homeless. Let's say you suffered from domestic violence, or let's say uh, you know you economic hard times, and you're seized to become a human guinea pig for the cartels, and they will dose you with fentanyl until you die. That is and this happens over horrific. and over yeah. and over and over, and that is uh, steps away from the United States. And who's to say it doesn't happen here? Um, uh, that 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 to me, I mean, I'm glad, and I and I have to. I praised El País's coverage before. Uh, El País, even though it's a Madrid-based uh, newspaper, it has some of the best Mexico coverage out there, and this is a shining example of it. It's, more people must know about this. Absolutely. And what's another component of this that's really interesting is that. Mexico doesn't really have any official statistics on drug use. And no. I was reading that Tijuana had a population about of half a million drug addicts in 2018. 
And this is interesting because Mexico currently has no policy to address the situation. And apparently they haven't carried out a national addiction survey in, since then, in five years. So it's hard to gauge what the problem is. But the only way to try to do so is by talking to organizations down there that deal with a lot of these addicts. Yeah. And from what I've read, they're all saying that addiction has skyrocketed with the introduction of fentanyl and that it's a huge problem and people are overdosing like crazy, but there's no way to have official numbers because they're not released. There's no survey on this. So do you think there's a, a, a real danger in like not confronting the issue like Mexico's doing? Yeah, uh, por supuesto, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, look, the, the, the absence of statistics, uh, the absence of metrics in Mexican civics, is no is no accident. Uh, you know, we've seen AMLO in the past, what in the past week, um, yeah. uh, you know, announced that he wants to shut down these, um, this this uh, governmental transparency agency, uh, yeah. which is of a which is Inai. of a piece with him. Inai, thank you. Um, which is which is of a piece with him shutting down INE, which is the electoral agency, and trying to you know basically mm-hmm. defang uh, the judiciary, the federal judiciary in Mexico. Um, uh, yeah. If you don't, if you don't have stats, if you don't have data, if you don't have uh, reporting and objective numbers, um, then it becomes quite difficult to critique his outcomes and critique his regime. And he knows that he's coming in to the final year uh, of his regime, and 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 he knows. I mean, he's he's cunning. He's not he's, he's not an ignorant man. He knows that the objective metrics are bad. Murder is up. Addictions up. Mm-hmm. Crime is up. Every every negative metric you can think of has skyrocketed under his rule, which is saying something considering where Mexico was before. It was already yeah. in a terrible place. He's left yeah. it much exponentially worse. Um, uh, and so and so the fact that they haven't uh, you know surveyed addiction, the fact that it's impossible to know what's going on, except by reference to uh, you know to, to, to NGOs and to civil society organizations, is part and parcel of his design. Yeah, like you say, yeah. the Inai stuff, it's like par for the course, right? It's very it is. like AMLO to attack the media, to attack government checks, um, yeah. to try to find this way to, to weaken democracy, to centralize power. And the Inai stuff is very interesting because he's just using the same excuse that he used for Ine. He's saying that it's wasteful. He's saying that it's not necessary, that how much money they spend should be used to help the needy. Right. And he's also saying that they were created to simulate to simulate that something is being done about corruption. Right. And here's a direct quote from him. He's a, well, not direct. This is translated. Please. But he says, when has there been more corruption in Mexico in the period that the institute has been in operation, excluding our own time in office? <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah. 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 Don't, how, be, how don't be mistaken. Right. But he's basically <laughs> saying that this organization was created to, to act like someone is trying to. To, to, to tackle corruption, right. but corruption has never been worse than with them. It's a, it, I mean, it's such a basic error of causation, it's almost comical in a way. Yeah. But, but I'll bet you nobody in the Palacio Nacional challenged him on it, I would bet yeah, you. Yeah, probably not. But um, he's saying that his administration is capable of dealing with all transparency requests without their help and that there are a lot of institutions that can take it on without spending so much money. Mm-hmm. And um, he's really been trying, I think, for a couple of months or maybe even longer to scrap them. Uh, he you know, vetoed uh, a request to put people in, in these new positions. They, I think they need five people in order to operate. And he won't staff them. Yeah, he won't staff them That's and right. someone retired. So, So right now they're kind of you know, out of commission, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But I just, I, I want to know your thoughts on like what the real importance is behind this 
government checks and the transparency in a government. It's part. I mean, just like we said earlier, it's part and parcel of what he's been doing the entire time, which is which is kicking out the props from the Mexican state. You know, Mexico uh, had a, a transition to democracy. There's no other way to put it. In the 1990s, along with much of the rest of the world, and the Mexican transition was not easy. Uh, I would argue that it's one of the more admirable transitions yeah. um, uh, because they didn't. Uh, there's a lot of things that could have gone wrong in Mexico in the 1990s that did not go wrong. But, but honestly, throughout the 1990s, you had um, sort of like the, the, the worst year is 1994 when Colosio was assassinated. We talked about him in a previous podcast. Uh, and then you had the yeah. Zapatista uprising in Chiapas. Yeah. But after that, yeah, you know, the, the Mexican, you have to give credit to Mexican civil society. And, and, and I give it in full. They established these independent institutions knowing that there needed to be some kind of a nonpartisan, um, uh, nonpartial oversight independent from elected office holders to oversee elections and data gathering at minimum, uh, you, know, you know, basic transparency. Uh, and then um, uh, they actually allowed an opposition candidate to win the presidency mm -hmm. in 2000. And so, and so what, what AMLO is doing, you have to understand, is unwinding all of that. He's ending that period. You know, Mexicans yeah. had, uh, I hate to be apocalyptic about it, but from 1990 through basically 2020-ish, circa both, both dates, um, uh, Mexicans had a hope and an expectation that they would be an open liberal democracy. That started to fade in 2006 with the beginning of the modern Mexican drug war, which you know you know is 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 a tragedy unto itself. Um, but it's really coming to an end now. Now that the that the state and the office holders and the federal government itself mm. are, are are closing out the institutions that allowed this um, flowering of uh, dissent and elections and civil society uh, to come forth. And that is um, uh, just a terrific tragedy, and it's one whose effects kind of per our opening conversation in this podcast uh, are going to be felt in the United States sooner or later. Yeah. And we talk about accountability a lot, mm -hmm. right? But this kind of transparency is exactly what's needed to hold any government accountable. Oh, yeah. Um, but shifting gears on that a little bit and speaking of how much AMLO hates his critics or anyone that opposes him, I want to talk about what you sent me yesterday, um, this letter that AMLO showed at his mañanera and he's oh, yeah. been you know, showing off where he asks Biden to basically stop funding um, the U.S. Agency for International Development, right. saying that right. they're basically financing these organizations that oppose what he stands for or what his government is aiming to do. Can you tell us a little bit about that? AMLO, AMLO is, I don't know how else to put it, AMLO is at war with the United States. Uh, he yeah. has decided for whatever reason, you know, again, known only unto him, um, that uh, he has got to go full rhetorical guns blazing versus the United States. And so what has he done? Uh, you know, he gave the speech in Veracruz that we talked about in which yeah. he promised to defend cartels from yeah. American action. He has, uh, you know, sent the letter that you talk about to President Biden, uh, basically saying that the United States government is funding critics of himself. Uh, yeah. uh, and uh, you know, in, in his mind, causing organizations and, hostile to his organizations government. hostile to his government. Yes, right. Who's in, 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 in the hostility? In his view, is is normal. You know, we would regard as Americans as normal civic criticism. Uh, so that's happening. Uh, he has bragged about. Mm -hmm. uh, apparently, there was another Chinese spy balloon, or what's believed to be another Chinese yeah. spy balloon, that uh, uh, passed over Mexican territory. And according to him, it is, is Maninera yesterday. Um, uh, the U.S. Department of Defense asked for permission to enter Mexican airspace to investigate it, yeah. which, which honestly would have been granted under any of his predecessors uh, yeah. in, in full candor. And AMLO bragged about saying no, no, he we didn't allow it. it. We did not allow it. You know, the Americans couldn't come into airspace. So, well, congratulations. So proud of it. 
Congratulations, Andres. Like you've you've had a Chinese spy balloon go over and like the one power that could have done something about it, you know, basically did nothing because, you know, yeah. to our credit, we respected the denial of airspace. It's fine. We're good neighbors. But uh, I, I don't think Amelo's regime is. I have to read you um, this the, the, this quote uh, because now everybody knows that he is just on a complete rip and a complete tear against the United States. Like like something has triggered within him. Uh, I guess I'll credit Representatives Crenshaw and Waltz uh, with with, mm -hmm. with bringing about the you know the fruition of his paranoia. He says. Um, this is at uh, uh, a couple of uh, mineers back. He says, uh, "El gobierno de, de los Estados Unidos tiene muchas agencias y muchas de estas agencias. Lo, uh, lo digo de manera uh, respe respetuosa. No actúan con rectitud. No respetan. Actúan con mucha prepotencia." And so, and so, this is basically saying, you know, they, 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 they've got. I know, right? Yeah, yeah. They, they, they've got agencies upon agencies, and they act essentially without respect. I yeah. Correct my Spanish. I'm getting it wrong. But it's basically saying they, they act without respect. They act with arrogance. They act with, um, you know, no regard for, you know, soberanía, yeah. uh, you know, the sovereignty of Mexico. And uh, AMLO's, AMLO's saying, you know, we're done with it. We're done with American arrogance and this and that. Well, uh, you know, the reason he's done with it is, of course, because uh, he yeah. himself is tied to the cartels. And he doesn't want the Americans digging into that. Um, uh, but it's, it, it is remarkable to me uh, the, the misread that is contained within AMLO's decision to go after the United States. Because the Biden administration really doesn't want to do anything. Uh, about about Mexico or about AMLO or about the Moreno regime, uh, mm -hmm. anything like that. The Biden administration is in sort of deer in a headlights mode and always has been vis-a-vis -vis yeah, the border. Exactly. And they just want to be able to ignore it. That really is that really is the overall driving preference. They don't have any interest in like promoting Mexican democracy. They have sort of some of the bureaucrats within them have sort of this this reflex toward like a green agenda or promoting LGBTQIA plus in in in, in Mexico, which frankly Claudia Scheinbaum would willingly cooperate with anyway. <laughs> um, uh, but 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 all things told, AMLO is continually you know making these increasingly difficult to ignore provocations and insults toward yeah. Washington D.C. and toward the U.S. federal government, and I have to wonder where he thinks it's going to end. I don't think it's going to end where he thinks it's going to end. No, I don't. And since you shared a quote, I want to share before we move on to Please. a different topic. I want to share. Uh, his quote also on this. Okay. He said, the U.S. government, specifically through USAID, has for some time been financing organizations openly against the legal and legitimate government that I represent. This is clearly an interventionist act, contrary to international law and the relations which should prevail between free and sovereign states. And then another quote that wasn't in the, that one was in the letter. Another quote that wasn't in the letter is, I hope that a review is made of this interventionist policy because it is offensive, it's arrogant, it's acting as if what as if one were the owner of the entire American continent. And I think this is kind of funny because we just talked about the Monroe Doctrine last week. Oh yeah. But he basically came out and said that the Monroe Doctrine, America for the Americans, remains the beacon of US foreign policy and that that is why we have frictions with them. Well, uh, I wish I wish he were right about that. Yeah. Uh, it clearly doesn't, but <laughs> we, we would be in a better place if the Monroe Doctrine remained a beacon of, of American foreign policy. Um, uh, but look, you know, we're talking about a guy who uh, is is uh, you know fulminates against the United States, but has no problem with the Iranians, the Russians, the Chinese, uh, you name it, the Cubans operating uh, in Mexico against the United States. So my my, my sympathy is is quite small, and uh, I don't think I am out of bounds by saying that he is being disingenuous in his critique. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Yeah. And you talked a little bit about the Veracruz speech already. Right. Um, but I want to touch a little bit more on that. And I want you to share a little about Greg's op-ed that was posted. It was posted last week, right? Sure. It yeah, was posted it was. last week. It's it's titled AMLO Sides with the Cartels, which yes. I think is very appropriate because he was saying in his Veracruz speech that he will use the Mexican state mm-hmm. and the Mexican military to defend cartels from the Americans. That's right. So can you tell us a little bit more about what Greg, which for our listeners, Greg is our wonderful CEO here at the Texas Public yes. Policy Foundation. Yes. So can you fill us in on his op-ed? Yeah, Greg Sindelar, CEO and president here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation had uh, this piece that you mentioned in uh, the Spectator world. So if you go to Spectator, you can find it uh, there on AMLO siding with the cartels. And it uses the um, the Veracruz speech as uh, kind of a, a, a news hook. Yeah. And a launch point to talk a little bit more about what U.S. policy toward Mexico uh, needs to be. And, uh, you know, concurrent with what we at the foundation have advocated for quite a long time, we need to have a reality-based policy. Um, uh, nobody in in the foundation, and I would argue no meaningful cohort in the United States, is hostile toward Mexico as such. Uh, you, know, you know, we recognize, especially those of us who are Texan, recognize, and we've said this many, many times on the podcast, Mexico is a neighbor. It's always going to be one. Geography right. is what it is. And cultural interchange uh, is what it is, too. I'm half Mexican. Oh, yeah. uh, and so, and so you know, you know we, we, we proceed with great regret uh, at any negative conclusion vis-a-vis Mexico and the Mexican state. But that regret does not override the imperative to realism. And so understanding what Mexico is, understanding what the current Mexican president is, and knowing that he will almost certainly, I would say 99%, choose a successor who is either as bad as him or controlled by him, uh, we need to make policy accordingly. And so what uh, what, what Greg Sindelar talks about in his op-ed is what that policy might look like. And we think that you know two of the, um, uh, t- two of the ideas that need to be on the table uh, our foreign terror designation for Mexican cartels, uh, mm-hmm. which would you know probably involve figuring out what the judicious use of the U.S. armed forces is, right. and uh, and then on the other hand, an Article One, Section Ten constitutional declaration of invasion uh, by the state of Texas, which we've long stood for. And so, just thinking about those things, we think gets policymaking into the proper place, proceeding from the proper premises, and you know, hopefully we don't have to use any of this, right? But uh, we would be abdicating in our duty of stewardship. Uh, as as, uh, those who engage in policymaking in the United States, not to squarely face what reality is now. Yeah, needs to be on the table. It does. And we've been saying that for a long time, and that's why it's great that, that Greg is writing about it, and so, that so many people on both sides of the aisle are agreeing that Mexico, the Mexican state, at least, is is no longer a partner, and they're on their way to becoming much worse. Yeah, no, I think that's right, and, and I think you make a really good point there. That's worth that's worth uh, emphasizing um, that uh, this really isn't a left right issue. It's not a Democrat Republican issue either. Um, uh, it's it, it has been very interesting to me to see that although there is not policy consensus. There's not consensus on what we ought to do about Mexico, even within the conservative movement. It's a very heterogeneous, uh, you know, set of opinions on that, which is which is great. It's fine. You know, let the best, let a thousand schools of thought contend. Um, uh, uh, the analysis of what's happening, the common propositions, the understanding that, yes, this is what's happening in Mexico and this is why, is increasingly universal, not just among those of us on the right, uh, but also among many of our friends on the left. Uh, yeah. I, have, I have now spoken with former Biden administration officials, um, you know, yeah. folks who, who, with, with whom we profoundly disagree, respectfully, but nevertheless profoundly disagree on like immigration policy, for example, nevertheless will affirm uh, that their understanding of what's happening to the Mexican state is the same as ours. And I think that's pretty telling. Yeah, I think so too. We've even seen very, 
you know, leftist uh, writers mm-hmm. coming out and writing articles about this. So that's, that's right. been that's been something that's very unexpected, but yeah. Um, that tells you where we are. A big development that tells you where we are. Yeah. So how about, I want to talk about the violence in Tamalipas. How about this crazy stuff that's happening in Tamalipas? Uh, in the last couple of days, there's not really been a lot of official reporting on mm-hmm. it. There's not been really any articles that I've been able to find on it. But Twitter has been showing us that what's happening in Tamalipas yeah. is an absolute war zone. Twitter is en fuego. Yeah, Twitter. Yeah. And you won't be able to find a lot about it on Google. It's not being reported. But the videos on Twitter are showing that the roads are blocked, that there's being shootouts, and that there's these cartel convoys, um, these armored vehicles. They're called monstruos. It looks like out of an actual war zone. Yeah. And what... I think is what's happening, what we've been able to deduce from all of these reports and like people that are there, is that there's a there's a fight for control over drug trafficking territories. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't very familiar about like which cartels are over which territories, but I did a little bit of research about it. Please. And it seems that the problem is that the area of Tamalipas has been dominated by the Gulf Cartel for a really long time. Correct. And their former, their armed wing, the Setas, mm-hmm. right? And so this is their region. But the problem now is the, that the Jalisco Cartel Nueva Generación, the CJNG, right. seem to be making some inro- inroads into the south of Tamalipas. That's and right. they wanted to clean house. So it seems that now... This cartel is on offense, and it's going after the the Gulf cartel. Yeah. And that's what's causing all of this fighting, all of these shootouts, all of these roads being blocked. And um, I think what's also very interesting, I want to know what else you've heard, but what's also interesting is that we're being told by politicians, we're being told by the Mexican government that everything is fine, that everything's under control, that there's nothing bad happening. And they seem to avoid wanting to have this conversation. But they're also saying the same people who are saying that are also saying do not go out uh, after sundown. Yeah, yeah apparently right. like schools schools were closed as well. Right. Um, but they're telling us that everything's fine, that it's being exaggerated. Uh, even the president, AMLO, said that it was some sort of attempt uh, to make the governor look bad, like a political attempt. Who's, who's, a, who's a Morena governor? Yeah. Yeah, who's a Morena governor who's known to have been funded by exactly. the cartels. Yeah, right. exactly. Right. So what else have you seen about this? And uh, do you think that this is just them trying to shove something under the rug that is the direct... Uh, repercussion of the hugs, not bullets. Oh yeah, of course, policy. of course. I mean, I mean, like so, so. So Tamaulipas, for those of you who don't know where Tamaulipas is, Tamaulipas is the state that uh, that basically borders Texas from essentially the mouth of the Rio Grande and the Gulf of Mexico all right. the way up to uh, effectively Laredo. And uh, it, it's the old Tamaulipas is the old Nuevo Santander that we've talked about several times. It's, it's coterminous with this territory, and so it, it's got this kind of spit of land on the south end of the Rio Grande that would, um, uh, had had Mexico not lost Texas, would have cut across the Nueces, and that would have been core Tamaulipas. So when you th- when you think about Tamaulipas, you're actually thinking about a population that's the same founding population as exists in South Texas. And we opened this episode by talking about the Lower Rio Grande Valley. So this is the, this is yeah, the same people, same exactly. same same cultural milieu. Uh, yeah, Tamaulipas uh, has never been particularly safe. 
Um, I have not. I personally have not set foot in Tamaulipas since 2011. Uh, it was in Matamoros for a breakfast. Uh, I just don't remember if I've talked about this on the podcast before. No, you haven't. But you've talked about it to me. So I, what I, are you I, sharing? Yeah, I, I may have. The, the the very short version is I was having breakfast in Matamoros with a, with a journalist, and there was a, um, a probably a little cartel lookout uh, who was there. It was quite early in the morning, and we got spotted. I stand out in Mexico, and uh, and no, so and so I'm we kidding. had to. Yeah, yeah, they were out. <laughs> Uh, and so, so we had to hightail it for the for the international bridge, uh, and, and that's also where I found out that I needed a, a coin to drop in the turnstile to, oh. to, to, to head back north, which <laughs> is which is a little bit of a little bit of a high tension moment for me. But uh, but, but but look, you know, Tamaulipas is for obvious reasons an epicenter of cartel activity. You're correct; it's it's traditionally controlled by Cartel del Golfo, Cartel del Noreste, um, uh, the Zetas, which I think were described in the news story as kind of their armed wing. They sort of float in and out uh, depending on what incarnation they're in, as either subsidiaries of these. Cartel Cartels are as independent actors on their own. So, you know, we have to understand these are very fluid organizations that change over time. Uh, it, it does look like what's happening now over the past week is that, uh, and, and I've heard the same thing you have, and by the way, n- neither of us can verify this, but this is kind of what's been reported, which is that yeah. the, 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 the Jalisenses are making their move to take over Tamaulipas. Now, yeah. now, now it's, it's obvious why they're doing it. There, there's no money like the money you get from controlling a border crossing, and this is this is a big one. This yeah. is a big one. And something like 40% of uh, U.S. international trade goes through Laredo. Uh, so it's just, it, it, it is a big, big deal to, to, to get to control this. Who knows? I mean, there's no Nobody to root for in this case because they're both bad guys. Um, but this this sort of open warfare is going on. What you recount, I think, illuminates something uh, extremely important to understand. You mentioned that you can't find news reporting on it. That's because there is no news reporting on it. Mexico being, I think, either the deadliest or second most deadly uh, nation in the world for journalists. Actually, I think it's the deadliest nation in the world for journalists. It um, is. Uh, yeah. So, so, so it's yeah. the worst. It's the worst place. Um, uh, formal journalism, especially in a place like Tamaulipas, Mexico City, you'll probably get some coverage. But Tamaulipas, you just you won't get any coverage of it. Uh, anybody who tries to cover it in a journalistic capacity is going to be killed. Of so course. the news and the reporting all has to come from social media and and it's got to be from anonymized accounts yeah. uh, uh, you know because there have been plenty of examples of individuals who have tweeted something or posted on Facebook and cartel activities and and, and the cartel guys um, they do it for the institute and they'll come and they'll find people who criticize them on social media and they'll, they'll kill hunt them. you down they'll hunt you down yeah. and then they'll post it on social media right so 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 it's so, so finding this out this is sort of the veil of uh, of unknowing that descends upon uh, places and episodes like this we know something's happening we know there's a scenario of effectively open warfare you know within Tamaulipas we know that these convoys with the monstros are you know traveling from place to place we know there's gun battles we know there's bloqueos we know all this is happening um, uh, but we can't get a grip on it because it is it is seen through a glass darkly. You get bits and pieces, the odd tweet, the odd Instagram post, some of them from the cartels themselves. Uh, and so what we can say for sure is there's great violence. And we can also say that the state governor, who you know in theory has the stewardship of his own citizenry and people is responsible for their safety, is denying that it's there. And well, I mean, why would he not? These are the people who funded him to begin with. Yeah, and it's $7 million, by the way. The that, that money that the allegedly came from the Cartel de Noreste for well, Americo Villarreal's then campaign. W- w- what a sound investment they made. No pocket change, though. It's a no, lot of money. That's right. Yeah. Um, but I want to share a quote with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't really go into all of this because it could take an entire podcast on its own. Sure. Uh, but it's, um, it's a quote from the president of Salvador Bukele. Sure. And he said, not relating to this, but I just thought it was pertinent. He said, Cuando un gobierno no combate efectivamente la criminalidad, no es porque no tenga la capacidad de hacerlo, sino porque los cómplices de los criminales son los que están en el, en el gobierno. Mm. And that in English mm-hmm. for our listeners is, yeah. 
When a government does not effectively combat criminality, it is not because it lacks the capacity to do so, but because the accomplices of criminals are those who are in the government. That's right. So yeah. I just thought that that was... Uh, I mean, I agree uh, with it. I, yeah. I, I, I hesitate to uh, join in the Bukele fan club because I, 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 I still have this nagging feeling that, uh, that I don't know enough yeah, to say too. one way or the other. But, uh, but I'll, I'll give him this. He's saying the right things. Yeah. And yeah. I know there's a lot of people... Um, that oh, yeah. love him. I've heard that from so many people that are just his number one fans. Oh, now. I mean, he's become like this base thing. It's 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 weird. If you told me that uh, that in 2023 I would approve of statements from the president of El Salvador and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, on various topics, I would never have believed you. It's almost uh, an example of how topsy turvy things have become. But uh, yeah, yeah I, I mean, I mean, Bukele's objectively correct, and he's yeah. describing not just El Salvador but Mexico and the rest of the right. region. Yeah. So much of Latin America. Mm -hmm. But we'll have to talk about El Salvador in a different podcast. Let's do it. But I want to ask you about something else before we end, and okay. uh, that is a day that a lot of Americans will be celebrating tomorrow. Yes. Where I'm opening my phone so I can read the quote. On yes, it. please do. But I know tomorrow is a day that we're all going to be eating too much, drinking too much partying too much, and um, that's Cinco de Mayo. So can you tell us a little bit about what the heck it is and what it actually stands for and what it represents? Well, I just I, I just want I just want to interject. Those of you who will be eating and drinking too much uh, are the ones without uh, nine and seven year old children. That's at right. Home. So 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 I will be I will be uh, wrestling you know wrangling uh, kids. Um, uh, you know, Cinco de Mayo. Everybody thinks it's the, like the Mexican holiday. It's yeah. not. It's not really celebrated in Mexico. Some Do, people think it's Independence Day. Like a lot of Americans actually think that. Correct. Yeah, it's not Independence Day. Independence Day is September fifteenth. Yeah. Uh, with the grito. Um, uh, I mean. I'm just kind of curious. Did Cinco de Mayo come up in Bolivia? There's no reason it would have. Never. Never heard of it. I right? didn't know what it was. Mm. Okay. Well, right. So, which is probably true for a lot of Mexicans too. Um, uh, Cinco de Mayo uh, it does have one important thing uh, uh, from a Texan perspective. The general who won the Battle of Puebla on May 5th, 1862, uh, Ignacio Zaragoza was a mm -hmm. native-born Texan. So, if you go to Goliad, you can see the statue of Ignacio Zaragoza, and he. Um, in fact, you were just telling me, which I did not know, that they renamed Puebla, Puebla de Zaragoza. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah it was named after him. Well, I mean, fantastic. You know, good, good, good for him. That's why the big party is there every year. Well, sure. So, so, so we should set the historical context because I want to read a quote from Dr. Jill Biden, uh, oh. our eminent first lady on Cinco de Mayo. Uh, so, so the, 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 you know, Cinco de Mayo, essentially what happens in 1862 is the French invade Mexico. I'm skipping over a lot. The French invade Mexico. And to, to invade Mexico, um, you have you land at Veracruz, you go to Puebla, and then once you control Veracruz and Puebla, that supply line, then you can move on the Valley of Mexico and Mexico City, okay. which is kind of, kind of the whole prize. Yeah. So the French try to do this, uh, and at the Battle of Puebla on May 5th, 1862, the Mexicans under Saragossa repulse the French force. Now the French come back later and they win it and everything, but it, but but it's a it, it's it's a victory. The, the, there's a bit of um. Uh, I guess kind of a, a mini controversy going on right now because I guess the White House this year in Washington D.C., our White House, is not uh, going to commemorate Cinco de Mayo. Um, it typically does. There's typically something uh, for it, and and so it's a little bit unusual that there isn't. And I, I don't know why. I mean, we can speculate. When I was yeah. uh, working in the Bush administration as a baby speechwriter, uh, we we uh, uh, we did do a Cinco de Mayo celebration, and so I got to you know shake the hands of the president because they invited all of the <laughs> all the Hispanic uh, you know Schedule C appointees there, and and so I got it was my only interaction with with President Bush was he kind of looked at me and, and you know he said you know this is for the Hispanic employees, yeah, and I was like well yes sir <laughs> thanks I, I know I'm 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 half Mexican. Uh, but uh, I, I want to read, just for comedy value, uh, I want to read Dr. Jill Biden's speech 
just a passage from her speech on Cinco de Mayo 2022, last year's Cinco de Mayo. Let's hear it. I have to read it. So this is this is Dr. Jill Biden. Uh, see, I'm using the honorific. Um, as you, you should. Know, as I should. Yeah. Um, so this is what the First Lady says. The Battle of Puebla, which Cinco de Mayo celebrates, lasted only for a single day. Defending the small town of Central Mexico wasn't a major strategic victory in the Franco-Mexican War. But the fact that a ragtag group of soldiers outnumbered three to one could defeat Napoleon's French Foreign Legion was a victory of the heart. I love this. I love this passage. I mean, it's pure bathos for one thing, yeah. um, but it's so riddled with historical error that, uh, that that it almost exemplifies just the intellectual power and heft that this White House brings to to, to, to foreign affairs. And, and, and there's three things that I love about the passage. I mean, first, that uh, that nobody on the First Lady's, Dr. Jill Biden's, speechwriting staff or research staff knew why the Battle of Puebla happened. She says uh, it wasn't a major strategic victory. Actually, it was. It's yeah. very important to seize Puebla, which is why every invader of Mexico for the past 500 years has had to do it. Uh, from Cortez, uh, although Puebla didn't exist then, but it was Cholula and the environs to the United States Army in 1846, 1847, and then uh, to, to to the French themselves. And then, of course, we talked about the 1914 mm -hmm. Intervención in Veracruz, which would have been prelude to marching on Mexico City in some concepts, right? which also would have involved taking Puebla. So that's okay. one thing that they got wrong, that Puebla is extremely strategic. It yeah. is a strategic outcome action. The other thing, she says that uh, uh, that the Mexicans defeated, quote, Napoleon's French Foreign Legion. Well, the French Foreign Legion was not present in Mexico on May 5th, 1862. And, and I bring this up, you know, not to be nitpicky, but just to illuminate the depth of profound ignorance. Yeah that pervades our leadership class, well, on almost any subject, but absolutely on Mexican affairs. And if this uh, attention to detail is absent in something like a First Lady address, um, uh, it is assuredly absent in real policymaking. And it is into that gap that this podcast tries to step, this foundation tries to step, in order to bring some realism and information to a very serious topic. Yeah. And is the part about the them being like very outnumbered and the Mexican soldiers being like not foreseen to be able to. I believe that's true. That part's true. I believe that's true. I don't know about the three to one figure. I didn't double check. Yeah. It. Um, but uh, I was I was bowled over by the rest of the factual yeah. error. So that's so, so interesting. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. Thanks. I also thought I was I was researching, you know, what Mexicans do on Cinco de Mayo because I was so interested by mm -hmm. it. And it's really just a very regional holiday. It's just celebrated in Puebla. Sure. You won't see people celebrating it anywhere else, and they call it La Batalla de Puebla, La which Batalla I thought was very, very funny because the United States makes it like a coast-to-coast -coast celebration, and apparently it started in California when they heard about what happened in that area of Puebla on Cinco de Mayo, and they they heard, you know, that they... You know, the Mexican army was so outnumbered and so outmanned and mm. that they managed to win anyway. And so they heard about it. People took to the streets. They started partying. It was a California celebration. It was a Cal it began in I California. I didn't know that. That's yeah. interesting. Okay. So maybe that's why it's so big in the U.S. right now. Well, uh, congratulations to California for, um, you know, once again, taking uh, somebody else's thing and, yeah. making, it <laughs> and making it their own. Yeah. I'm not mad, though. It's yeah, a fun fine. celebration. That's fine. Um, yeah. But... I, I think that we're almost out of time, but I just want to wrap up with, with one last thing. For those of our listeners who don't know, we got the, the, the very sad news last week that 
Alejandro Hope passed away. Yes. Uh, we've talked about him on the podcast before. Uh, we, I think the last time that we brought up one of his columns was when we were talking about the Tamalipa stuff, the, the Mexicans that were murdered there. That's um, right. But he was, you know, a wonderful security analyst. Uh, we loved reading his stuff. I mean, Absolutely. we loved following him on Twitter. And Absolutely. we had the pri privilege of meeting with him before as well when we were in Mexico. And it's just absolutely tragic that he's passed and we just wanted to share that with our listeners yeah no thank you and and, and thank you for making a point of mentioning that uh, Melissa because it is important it is important to know Alejandro hope you know of all the things that you and I talk about uh, I'll speak for myself uh, on this um, uh, you know uh, the, the the work that I do is but a shadow of uh, the work of a, of a man like Alejandro hope um, yeah. who, who unlike me I'm a US citizen I don't have to live in Mexico um, uh, he was a very very proud Mexican Patriot. Uh, who lived and worked in his home country uh, to make it better. He spoke fearlessly. Um, uh, you know, he told the truth uh, about the relationship between the Mexican state and cartels uh, and was very candid about it. He leaves behind a wife and family. Uh, I don't think we know the cause of death, but, uh, you know, regardless of what it was, uh, he was he was quite quite young, wasn't he? He was yeah. maybe maybe 50. He was 52, um, I think. Uh, yeah, so I'm at the age for 52 is, is going to qualify as young uh, yeah. on an honorary uh, standpoint. But uh, but he, you know, it's, 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 it's a terrific, terrific blow to those of us who care about uh, Mexico and about a Mexican society and state that is decent and just toward its own citizenry. And so, you know, we at the, at the Hard Country and at the Texas Public Policy Foundation uh, honor his memory, and we are grateful for the uh, for the aid that he gave us in understanding uh, his own country um, when he lived. Absolutely. It's yeah. so tragic, and he will be missed. Absolutely. Um, but on that note, I think that we can wrap up. So thank you to all of our listeners. Um, we will see you next time. Thank you.